and welcome to another episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. On this episode of the podcast, I visit publicdomainreview.com, or .org, I believe. Is it .org or .com? .org, it is. And we learn about the myth of Blubber Town. The Public Domain Review is an online journal and not-for-profit dedicated to the exploration of curious and compelling works from the history of art, literature, and ideas. Their goal is to promote and celebrate the public domain in all its abundance and variety, so make sure to head over to publicdomainreview.org for more brilliant essays like the one I'm about to read today. Though the 17th century whaling station of Smearenburg was in reality, at its height, just a few dwellings and structures for processing blubber, over the decades and centuries a more extravagant picture took hold, for there once had stood defying its far-flung arctic location, a bustling urban center complete with bakeries, churches, gambling dens, and brothels. Matthew H. Burkhold explores the legend. Perched on a desolate island in the Norwegian archipelago, archipelago yes, of Svalbard, 1,500 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, sits the settlement of Smearenburg, founded by Dutch whalers in 1619. Smearenburg, literally Blubbertown, was once the busiest, the busiest polar site for rendering oil from blubber. As new hunting grounds and technologies rendered land-based processing obsolete, the outpost became unnecessary. Far away Smearenburg was abandoned by 1663. Despite its belief, its brief existence, myths of a bustling blubber town lived on. Sailors recounted streets lined with churches, shops, and bakeries. Other tales described the clubs and brothels, forlorn whalers could visit. Respected scientists and historians, including William Scoresby and Frigid Nansen, repeated the stories, claiming tens of thousands of people dwelled on the icy island. In reality, no more than 15 ships carrying 400 men visited the site. Smearenburg began with a happy accident. Searching for a northeast passage in 1596, famed navigator Willem Behrens stumbled upon the Svalbard Islands. Here, along the rocky coast, he found countless bowhead whales and saw an opportunity. The Dutchman planted a flag and claimed the lucrative waters for the United Provinces. For the next century, the Dutch ruled the whale trade, supplying almost all of Europe with oil for lamps and whale bones for corsets and hoop skirts. The peerless Dutch Navy safeguarded sailing routes against English, German, and French interlopers as Dutch whalers asserted exclusive rights to the best hunting grounds in the Arctic. The resulting near-monopoly allowed Dutch companies to keep prices artificially high and further gild their coffers. The legacy of this golden age dominance is recorded in our language. In addition to maritime words like maelstrom, skipper, and cruise, the terms iceberg and walrus also stem from Dutch exploits in the Arctic. 
1614, an alliance of Dutch cities created the Norsch Company as a whaling cartel, which sent ships north each June. Following a three-week journey, the ships arrived to what they called Spitsbergen and remained until September or October when the growing ice threatened to trap them. At the time, whales were hunted near the coast and in fjords. Harvesting the golden, excuse me, harvesting the gold of the seas was arduous. Bowhead whales were the favorite target of Dutch speculators because they were slow swimmers and possess vast quantities of blubber. They can grow up to 60 feet and weigh more than 100 tons. The whip of a tail could spell death. Once a whale was spotted, men hurried to small boats and rowed toward the beast. Back on shore, men stood atop the giant carcass and flensed the blubber from the muscle. This process could take hours or days, depending on the size of the whale, the skill of the crew, and the weather. In the 17th century, the extracted blubber was cut into manageable pieces unboiled in enormous iron ovens to render oil. After cooling in wooden casks, the oil was funneled into barrels and loaded onto ships to be sold on the European market. Besides alleviating the potential factor of rotting blubber aboard, producing oil on shore saved space in the hold and thus increased profits. During their first expedition in the Arctic, ships from the Norse Company set up camp on a narrow promontory off a small island near the northwest coast of Spitsbergen. They named it Amsterdam Island. The whalers returned to the same site each summer with canvas tents and makeshift ovens. In 1619, they arrived with timber, brick, and peat from home to create a permanent whaling station. The settlement came to be called Smearenburg, a fitting name given the heaps of blubber, Smearen, carved up at the site. As more ships arrived each year, additional oil cookeries were built, as well as storehouses and dwellings. The buildings were named for the cities that owned them, Delft, Anquisen, Horn, Middleburg, and Veer, among others. Word of a booming blubber town spread among whalers in the Arctic. There was no agreement on how large it had grown and when it was deserted. Most believed it was a bustling place. Written accounts corroborated the whalers' yarns for a broader public. Jacob Segert's Vanderberg, for instance, published his journal shortly after returning home from a whaling from whaling in 1634. He described the lodgings the Middleburg tent he occupied measured 21 by 16 feet and catalogs his diet, including fresh meat from reindeer, foxes, and birds. Vanderbruge even claimed he had to have repeatedly eaten salads. The German naturalist Friedrich Martens visited in 1671, traveling abroad a ship christened Jonah in the whale. His 1675 report of the journey included the first scientific description of the flora and fauna of Svalbard and became an off-sided reference work. In Martin's eyes, Smearenburg was a village. Chronicles escalated from there, particularly as their authors ceased visiting the settlement themselves.
By the 18th century, written accounts make clear that Smedenberg was abandoned, but the myth of its former grandeur continued. Cornelis Rietzberg penned what is considered the first classic account, influencing dozens of authors. Writing in 1720, Rietzberg assures his readers that he is using reliable information from informants whose kin sailed to the whaling station when the Norse company was master of the trade. He upgrades the settlement from village to a half-small city with busy streets. According to his account, Smearenberg was a destination to make a, quote, good purchase, end quote. Best of all, Smearenberg was home to multiple bakers. Each morning when they pulled their bread hot from the oven, a horn was blown to alert the weary whalers. For this reason, he is tempted to compare Smearenberg with Batavia, then the humming capital of the Dutch East Indies, but dimmers based on the number of anchor ships reported. Over time, the purported size of Smearenberg grew larger as the myth propagated. English explorer William Scoresby, whom Herman Melville's, Melville's Ishmael quotes in Moby Dick, introduces false numbers into the legend. In his popular 1820 account of the Arctic regions, Scoresby, Scoresby yes, asserts, quote, the place had the appearance of commercial and manufacturing town, end quote. Leaning on the Batavia comparison mentioned by Zorgdgrader and elaborated upon by other writers, Scoresby has no problem repeating the invention of shopkeepers, artisans, and bakers, ultimately calculating the population between 12,000 and 18,000 people. For comparison, at the time of the American Revolution, Boston had 15,000 residents. Building on Scoresby's description, other authors add churches, fortresses, wood-paneled houses in bright colors, and even enlarge the size of buildings to 80 by 50 feet. By the end of the century, the rocky coast was thought to have been packed full and the harbor teeming with ships. The most colorful accounts come from the 20th century. Surprisingly, the otherwise meticulous Norwegian scientist Fridtjof Nansen famous for crossing Greenland, perpetuated and inflated the myth. In his work, A Voyage to Spitsbergen, Nansen claims, quote, Here was a whale town with booths and streets, some 10,000 people in the summer, with a clamor of pack stalls and oil cookeries and gambling halls, of smithies and workshops, of peddlers and dance halls, among his flat beach, a mass of boats with seafarers just coming from the exciting whale hunt, and of women in various colors who were in the manhunt. Nansen likely read the earlier text by Zorg Drager, Zorg, geez, what a difficult name, Zorg Drager, and Scoresby, though it is unclear whether he had source for the addition of lusty women and the dance halls. Regardless, Relying on Nansen as a respected researcher, others soon ran with the idea. Helge Ingstad, who, with his wife Anne Stein, discovered the remains of Vikings of a Viking settlement in Canada, repeats the extravagant tale of Smearenberg in his 1948 book, 
the land of the cold coasts. Ingstad discusses the shops, dwellings, and churches, and further adds a house for loose women. As late as 1984, the Norwegian Svalbard Society released a history of the archipelago that cited the bakeries of Smirnberg and estimated its population reached up to 18,000 men. In reality, Smirnberg was never more than a desolate outpost. Thanks to the enduring myth, considerable archaeological work was conducted on Amsterdam, Amsterdam Moya between 1979 and 81. Some estimate the maximum number of men to have been 200 at any given time, and there is no evidence of women on the site. There have been, in total, there may have been a total of 19 buildings, including warehouses and workshops, where craftsmen, blubber cutters, and blubber cooks worked. At most, there were eight oil cookeries. There was no church or gambling den. The focus was unambiguously on work and capitalizing on the short hunting season. The conditions were grueling and men likely worked long hours, taking advantage of the endless Arctic summer days. By the 1660s, Smirnberg was a ghost town. The Norse company dissolved in 1642 after Dutch free traders created too much competition for the cartel. Further precipitating the decline of Blubbertown, whales all but vanished from the coast of Svalbard. The animals began avoiding the waters either due to shifting currents or learned weariness of the area. With whales further out at sea, it became unnecessarily difficult to drag them to shore, particularly to an island isolated in the upper reaches of the Arctic. Consequently, the Dutch abandoned shore whaling for pelagic whaling flensing slain whales alongside ships and returning to port in the Netherlands with unprocessed blubber. Vaguely aware of the history, some chroniclers warned against the tale, tales of a bustling blubber town. Already in his 1874 study of the Norse company, Samuel Mueller names them fairy tales. Nevertheless, the myth persisted and grew over time. One explanation, of course, is simply bad history. Authors stopped visiting the settlement themselves and depended solely on first- and second-hand reports. Eventually, these sources disappeared. Writers had to rely on previously written accounts of Smirnberg and a combination of misreadings and embellishments twisted into an elaborate yarn. Alternatively, it is possible that authors like Scoresby and Nansen strategically deployed the far-fetched stories to attract readers interested in the fantastic. A more generous interpretation, perhaps, is that historians projected their current situation onto the past. After the abandonment of the Norse company in 1642, the number of Dutch whaling ships rapidly increased from some 35 to 70 in 1654 and 148 ships by 1670. Unregulated free willing burst opened the industry, and the Dutch continued to outpace competitors until the second half of the 18th century. Others may have wrongly assumed all Dutch colonial ports were similar. Coincidentally, the Dutch East India Company razzed J. 
Jayakarta and founded Batavia in 1619. The same year permanent dwellings were built on Amsterdam Oya. Authors like Scoresby, who compared the whaling station with the still-flourishing Batavia, might have also sought to glorify the Dutch Republic's reach and riches by inflating the size and splendor of Smirnberg. The sailors who spread stories about Blubbertown likely had a different objective. Throughout the years, whaling remained both tedious and dangerous. The shift to open sea whaling meant most men did not step foot on land for months. Quarters about aboard a typical ship were damp, crowded, and typically under five feet high. In such conditions, dreams of warm beds and quaint cottages would naturally fill even the most sober heads. Sober heads. Daily servings of barreled beef might conjure illusions of freshly baked bread, and the monotony of working with the same crew could inspire longings for gambling dens and dance halls to meet new people. The fantasy of a blubber town brothel requires no explanation, especially for men tricked or coerced onto ships, as was not uncommonly the case. Such an imaginary town enabled hopes of a getaway, particularly in the Arctic, where there was no place to flee. Stories about Smirnberg might have been a foil that allowed later whalers to feel justified bemoaning their comparably harder lot. But ultimately, like many myths, Blubbertown was meant to entertain, to provide an escape for readers at sea and at home alike. Surrounded by steep mountains, glacier walls, and deep fjords, Smirnberg is now a popular stop for Arctic cruises. In seven, 1973, its ruins became part of Norway's Nordvest Spitsbergen National Park. Visitors are warned against walruses and then invited to wonder at the brick foundation of the triworks. They can gape at the so-called blubber cement that still outlines a place where enormous cooking vessels once stood. The result of mixed whale oil, sand, and gravel, the asphalt-like substance is the most tangible remnant of blubber town. Otherwise, the busy streets, warm bread, and welcoming women populating Smirnberg must continue to exist in our collective imagination. And that was the myth of Blubbertown. The writer of this essay was Matthew H. Burkhold. And um, you can learn more about him at MatthewHBurkhold.com. Hopefully you enjoyed learning about the myth of Blubbertown. I know I certainly did. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always email me at hello at sleepandrelaxasmr.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks as always for listening, and take care. <laughs>